0: The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York.
1: Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world. We think about what is going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. We think about uh, those things that impact the human person and primarily the dignity of the human person and that is quite frankly the underpinning the foundation of all of our catholic human teaching the human person made in the image and likeness of god and interestingly while we approach this from our catholic perspective i this almost sounds self-evident when i say this but when i say it is you know we realize that, that billions of people in the world aren't Catholic, and but we also realize that every single one, whether they are Catholic, Christian, any religion or no religion, is still made in the image and likeness of God and therefore worthy of dignity, worthy of respect. So uh, as we kind of look at what's going on in the world, we don't only think about how it impacts Catholics and Christians. We think about how it affects everybody. And so this week, we're going to be looking at two different topics. We're going to be looking at, again, another natural disaster, Hurricane Ian in that devastated Florida. And then a topic we're going to look at a little bit later on in our show is the celebration of what always has been kind of referred to as Columbus Day. But now um, there is another celebration, Indigenous People's Day. And we're going to be speaking with a professor from Santa Clara University on that. On Hurricane Eon, we're going to be speaking about um, what's going on there, the devastation and the response of Catholic Charities, with um, Eddie Gloria, who is the executive director, CEO of Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Venice. Uh, Tom, as we are kind of now into fall, um, do you like fall? I do.
0: Fall, actually, I, I, I like anticipation. So to me, fall is the beginning of the season, and I love Christmas and New Year. So for me, it's the beginning of the season. It's almost like an advent, like a secular advent, moving into the, moving into the winter holiday season. So I love Halloween. I love Thanksgiving. I love all those holidays. So this so, is this
1: is my time. Okay, so so Tom, <laughs> I want to bring you back to your youth. Um, so tell me about Halloween when you were when you were a
0: munchkin. Oh well, you know, uh, I, I I'm back in the day, Monsignor, that parents didn't make. The costumes, because today the costumes are fabulous that the kids walk around in. But I'm back from the day you go to the Woolworth, right? And they have the box with the with the mask on that almost suffocated you and you couldn't right. see out of. And then they'd have like the plastic costume with the with the picture of the character on the front. And so you'd go, you'd be Fred Flintstone, you'd be Gumby, you'd be uh, I don't know, Bullwinkle Moose. You know, it was all those popular characters at the time. So that that kind of was my. That was my foray into Halloween when I was a kid.
1: So which of your costumes was your favorite? Ah, uh, I think my
0: favorite was was when I was little, I was Gumby. And okay. the reason it was my favorite, because I was Gumby and the mask was Gumby. But I had, as an accessory, I had like one of those uh, horses, pogo sticks, but it was Pokey. It was the oh, orange okay. horse. It was Gumby's friend, Pokey. So I was able to, so I had Pokey and Gumby together. And, and I thought I just looked fantastic. I thought I was, I was cooking with gas.
1: All right. That's good. Be, <laughs> did you go out um, trick or treating? We did. And, I, you know,
0: we lived in in the Bronx. We lived in Riverdale. And so I loved it because when you were trick or treating at that time in the Bronx, you you basically went to apartment buildings. And so it was great. You'd go floor to floor. And uh, and I, I used to get a ton of candy. And and, and it was kind of like it, it it, you know, it sort of like was a multiplier because, you know, when if. Later on, when I moved to Westchester, you'd have to go door to door and it took a little longer to get house to house and you only got one family in the apartment houses. You know, you'd get 20, 30 families in a pot. So you really could score a lot of candy.
1: All right. So um, of the candy, what was your favorite? What did you like the best?
0: My very favorite candy for Halloween was either M&Ms or I like I like coconut and chocolate. So Mounds bars. I like the Mounds Mm. bars. All right. so those are those are my favorite.
1: Oh, so now we got to go a little bit further. We want to <laughs> we want to do this as a as a connoisseur. Um, regular M Ms or peanut M Ms?
0: I, as a kid, I liked regular because I wasn't too crazy about peanuts when I was a kid. Okay, but now I like peanuts. So mm-hmm. I I now I moved as a, as an adult, my taste has changed. So now I'm a peanut M M&M M guy. <laughs> All
1: right, but now but now we got to go even a little bit further. Uh, did you have a particularly favorite color, M and M? I liked probably if I did,
0: I'd choose the red ones only because I like I liked red as a color. So probably right. red, red, would be. I, the,
1: but you know, Tom, I I mean, I call like the different colors of the M and Ms, but to me, they all taste the same, don't they?
0: Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> you know, know, it just it just is like your preference for your color. I mean, you know, I mean, it's true. It kind of is neat that they come in different colors, but yeah. they all taste the same you know, there's no difference in flavor. All
1: right. Okay. So, all right. So, um, so good deal. Good deal. Um, uh, do you, do you do anything now as a, as a big kid for Halloween? I used to,
0: uh, well, I, when I first moved to the city, I, I, I thought it would be like when I was a kid. So I used to go and I would, and I live in a walk up, very small building. So I would go and I would get candy and I would wait much <laughs> here. I, it was very sad. I'd sit at home and wait for people to come by and nobody would come. So yeah. I'd wind up bringing the candy the next day to the office. And, you know, my coworkers appreciated it. But, you know, um, I really felt badly. So uh, so not really that much. I, I sometimes go down to the Halloween parade. I uh-huh. have in Greenwich Village, which is a lot of fun. But it's gotten very, very crowded. So I haven't done that in recent years. So, yeah, not, not, not as much anymore.
1: Yeah, I went there probably... Oh, maybe more than a decade ago. Um, I think I went twice. I mean, it was it was kind of fun. Uh, but I think I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm getting a little lazy for some of those big events. Now I know mm-hmm. you still go to the Fourth of July fireworks. Right?
0: I do. I do. I, yeah, that's a that's an annual thing, right?
1: Yeah, I kind of am not big into all of those 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 crowd things anymore because I don't like having to go so early. I don't like you know, not necessarily maybe getting a good view, etc. So, anyway, so I don't tend to go to too many of those uh, anymore. But who knows? Maybe. Um, but I do like parades, so um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do kind of stand on the sidelines watching uh, watching the the parade. So, anyway, so all right, Tom. Um, so why don't we go to our first guest? Our first guest is. Um, Eduardo Edi Gloria, who is the uh, Chief Executive Officer of Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Venice in Florida. Uh, And we're going to speak about um, the devastation of Hurricane Ian and, um, and how Catholic Charities is responding there. Eddie Gloria, thank you so much for joining us on Just Love.
2: Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you for making time to speak with me today.
1: Well, no, no, thank you for taking the time to be with us because, you know, from what I've seen in the media, there's been just a tremendous amount of, of devastation in Florida. And I know how busy you are trying to respond to that. So thank you for taking the time uh, to, be, to be with us.
2: It's my pleasure. It's, um, for us, it's, uh, it's, it's important to get the message out Uh, And it's, as as you can imagine, been very difficult to communicate with everyone outside of of, uh, our area on exactly what's happening. So uh, given this opportunity, I had to make time. So we we certainly have been very busy, but but eager to to get the message out.
1: So Eddie, kind of share with our, our listeners, you are in the Diocese of Venice. And can you kind of give our listeners who might not be as familiar with the geography of Florida, where Venice is in Florida, and and how that uh, was in the path of the the storm.
2: Absolutely. So Venice, Florida is located on the west coast of Florida, and it is uh, um, just south of Sarasota City. Uh, It is part of Sarasota County and north of uh, Port Charlotte, so it's situated between those two cities, um, and, and it's uh, sort of mid-level or mid-section of the, the Southwest Florida coast. The Diocese of Venice covers ten counties, from Manatee County down to Collier, which a lot of folks know as wh- where Naples is. Um, and we have uh, ten counties that also uh, some rural areas that go inland, as far as Hardy Highlands, DeSoto County. Hendry Glades, uh, but we also cover Lee County, which is Fort Myers. A lot of people know that area as well. Uh, Charlotte County and, and Sarasota and Manatee County, of course. Um, and Monsignor, you know, the, the hurricane we were tracking, you know, Ian uh, came up through uh, the western end of Cuba and made its way up the Gulf. And and for a while there, it looked like it was just kind of bend out. And we were all hoping it would kind of dissipate before it just, you know, reach any part of the mainland. We... we have seen turns before and we were hoping it wouldn't uh turn the way it did but it did uh, suddenly cutting right across the center of our diocese impacting the areas of fort myers uh, charlotte county uh, port charlotte was hit very hard uh southern parts of of the sarasota county which included the, the venice area which is where the diocese of venice main operating center is at so uh, that and, and, and parts of Northern Naples, uh, before it made its way inland and increased the waters of many of the rivers that were already at a 40 year high, which severely impacted the rural areas like DeSoto County where Arcadia uh, families in Wachula out in Hardy County uh, saw themselves uh, basically flooded out of their homes. Um, it's 20 feet at some pl- in some places, the, the, the surge from the rivers. Uh, but out by the coast, the the storm surge was over 25 feet uh, and just destroyed entire islands. Sanibel Island, Pine Island, and a few other places that people know as as great vacation spots were just leveled. Uh, so it, it was very destructive, uh, and so many people uh, have suffered. And as you know, it's claimed over 100 lives.
1: Wow, that is um, that is a that is very very sad and very tragic. Um, Eddie, you've you've lived in Florida for a while, I I believe, haven't you?
2: Yes, I I grew up in Florida, came here when I was five from Columbia with my family. Grew up in Miami and uh, uh, spent most of my life out there, so I'm I'm familiar with hurricanes. I was uh, a young boy when I went through Hurricane Andrew, Uh, and so I'm, I'm familiar with these storms and I know the devastation. I remember during that time how homestead or the city of homestead in, in south miami-dade was was crushed by hurricane andrew so this is something that I, I took very seriously the team and i were watching this very closely i you know I moved over from the miami area uh, a few years back and came over to the west coast and and we this is our second hurricane that we've dealt with uh obviously the, the previous one did not cause uh much damage but this one uh certainly took us you know uh Uh, I want to say, not by surprise, but certainly tremendous impact that we didn't expect.
1: So um, we're speaking with uh, Eduardo Eddie Gloria, who's the chief executive officer of Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Venice in Florida. And we're speaking about the recent uh, hurricane eon and the damage that it's caused there. Uh, Eddie, you began to kind of uh, give our listeners a little bit of sense of this, but let me ask you to say a little bit more. You know, for those of us in the rest of the country, uh, I'm in the Northeast, but, you know, we don't we don't experience uh, hurricanes, you know, all that often, but we see enough in the news to kind of think that oftentimes Florida is in the path of the hurricane. So, you know, hurricanes are not something that are, you know, once in a lifetime for people in Florida, but they do vary in intensity and damage. So, you know, how do how do you rank Eon compared with, you know, the ordinary hurricanes or others that you've seen?
2: Eon was a devastating storm. It was unprecedented uh, uh, in in terms of what it's done and the damage and one of the things a lot of people might not understand, especially if you're not in in, in areas like where we live, uh, you know, we we understand, we know in Florida we we deal with hurricanes all the time, and we're we consider ourselves Hurricane Alley, so to speak. Um, and and I know that most of the Gulf Coast states as well. Uh, it's it's water that that really causes the greatest damage. The wind and the rain together are devastating. But storm surge, rising rivers, uh, those are the things that take uh, the most lives. Um, we, you know, there was a gentleman that we have been helping here in Arcadia with some cognitive issues, who keeps asking for his wife, who was swept away by the river, and um, you know, it's very difficult to kind of you know explain to him what happened. Um, and, and it's just we see stories like that of homes, lives, uh, entire memories uh, gone with the with the rising. Uh, ocean and and, and rivers that that, um, devastated so many homes and families and and all the infrastructure uh, in our towns and our communities are are really hurting from what happened here. So although we live here and we we, uh, have have become more resilient over time and we've dealt with these things, uh, it just, you know, this one in particular, this hurricane really uh, did something to crush the, um, I want to say the the, the southwest coast of Florida, and there is so much need now. There's thousands uh, who are homeless now, uh, displaced, uh, whose homes they, they, they probably cannot uh, repair. Uh, some homes just completely leveled in um, and, and, you know, our infrastructure. Some schools aren't opening for another two months from the amount of damage they sustained. Uh, so it's it's catastrophic. The, the impact was certainly more so than many of the other stones we dealt with because you know it's not just the category this is this one came in as a category four so that was devastating in and of itself but we we often get category ones two which are very strong they have an impact but they they don't make as much damage if if a storm is able to create enough storm surge and rising waters then you have the kind of crisis that we're dealing with now uh and and you have the damage that that we've seen and the devastation uh and that's where kathy charities is trying to step in
1: So before I ask you to go to that very important point as to how is Catholic Charities responding? So can you give our listeners a sense of like how wide an area was was impacted? I mean, you know, let me just be as a non Floridian to say we know where Key West is. We know where Tallahassee is and we know where Jacksonville is and Miami how big a sure. swath did this cut? You know, uh, uh, a, few, a few hundred yards, a couple of miles or 10 miles. How big an area is the, is the devastation?
2: So, so the Diocese of Venice in Florida uh, covers 10,000 square miles. Okay. From Manatee County down to Collier right. and inland into these other places I mentioned. So picture a third of the state covered at any given time by this storm. Okay. Uh, and Fort is a massive state, so this came literally over our entire diocese. Right. Uh, there was no part of our diocese that, that was not impacted, just to be clear. Manatee was impacted, Sarasota was impacted, but the greatest devastation occurred where the water and the eye of the storm kind of met and, and brought that inland. And that's where, you know, I want to say it's literally the center of our diocese, Cape Coral, Fort Myers, North Fort Myers, Port Charlotte, Inglewood, South Venice, Venice Gardens, all those areas, Osprey and and uh, even in North Naples, Bonita Springs, Cape Coral, all of that was crushed. Um, and so, uh, you know, just to get a sense of that, we, we have uh, 63 parishes spread across the 10 counties that we serve. Right. Um, bishop Frank Duane, our bishop here, uh, you know, was was watching this with us and, and giving us guidance and helping us kind of prepare for it. But I, I don't think anybody could have imagined just what it would do cutting across the state like that through our, our system and, and then making its way North. I mean, it impacted, you know, the area of Orlando, the diocese of central Florida, the diocese of St. Petersburg was also impacted. They, they all felt this storm as it crawled its way up to um, the other side uh, of the coast.
1: So um, Eddie, let me ask you, okay, given this, so what's, what's Catholic Charities doing?
2: Well, Catholic Charities Diocese of Venice is working alongside with the Diocese of Venice here in Florida. And uh, prior to the storm, we were able to work with Bishop Duane to identify parishes that if they were standing after the storm, we would move and make our way in to begin distribution centers. So with, with Bishop Duane's help, we were able to uh, speak to the pastors, get access to their facilities. We operate our own facilities out here as well. Uh, and uh, obviously, as you know, we work under the offices of the Diocese of Venice, but we have our own facilities that we were able to um, uh, bring online quickly as well and, and open at this point 12 centers of distribution or donations. So we are taking in uh uh you know anything that we can receive from the community uh but we're also working with the state at this point to uh bring in much needed supplies like water food uh all kinds of uh you know uh items needed during a a cleanup process rakes chainsaws generators anything you can imagine uh that is being supplied through our efforts with the state of florida's disaster response uh, Organization or team up in Tallahassee, uh, FEMA, as well as helping us. We're we're working with other groups like the the Red Cross and and uh, Catholic Charities USA out of Washington D.C. Uh, to bring in. At this point, we've been able to bring in 41 semi tractor trailer loads of supplies with those items that I mentioned: rice, beans, blankets, tents. You can name it. Uh, dog food, hygiene kits, anything. Uh, we we have been able to set up these sites and distribute these things to people uh through car lines and at this point we've served over 20,000 people. Um maybe 5,000 plus cars or so that have come through or close to 5,000. Um and we're we're also taking in corporate donations and support. People like Etna brought out a food truck to help uh one of our distribution places in in uh in Arcadia. Chick-fil-A has donated over a 1,000 hot meals. The Atlanta Braves brought hundreds of sandwiches uh, and send volunteers out. There's a, a group called Gulf Eagle Supply that uh, also sent a semi-load of supplies. Uh, we have partners on the East Coast. Some of my former uh, board members at Camilla's House in Miami, also a Catholic-based organization that I used to uh, work out there, uh, they've called and asked how they could help and sent over a, a bunch of support. So we we are, uh, at this point, the tip of the spear on the response on the ground. We wanted to make sure right after the storm, one, that our, you know, wanted to make sure, one, that our staff was was unharmed, that our 96 employees were, were out of harm's way, that the diocesan employees for the diocese of Venice in Florida were also well, and, and we continued from there and starting to help the helpers get back on their feet so that we could together turn out towards the community. It took us several days to get Activated because of the devastation, because of the lack of communication, and the roads were closed. Parts of I 75, interna- uh, uh, Interstate 75, were underwater, uh, which is something incredible that, that I got to see. Uh, but once the, the water subsided a little bit, we, we got started, and this is where we're at right now, trying to just be the immediate response on the ground. Uh, but, it, but there's a long term element too.
1: So, um, but Eddie, I mean, I'm just going to say the obvious to some of our listeners. But isn't that what Catholic Charities is about? I mean, Catholic Charities is in the community before a disaster happens. And then because you're in the community, you're able to kind of get up and provide the help very, very quickly because you're not parachuting in from outside. You're just um, doing stuff that, is, uh, that's, that you've been doing before.
2: That's right, Manson. you're right. This is what Catholic Charities does. This is what we do. We have been in this community 40 plus years. We have been providing food and sustenance to the families in this community. We have been providing housing. We've developed housing for the elderly, uh, for workforce families, for low-income families. Uh, We also uh, uh, provide anti-human trafficking services, refugee resettlement we've done for so many years. we are an entity that's been here. That we've been part of this community, providing all kinds of services, including behavioral health and and um, and even uh, youth formation uh, programming, after school programming. So the community knows us. Uh, there's an incredible amount of goodwill here and a, an incredible amount of support. We have great supporters and people that believe in us. And and so as soon as we uh, activated, uh, we knew we had the community behind us. And so. You're right. This is what we do. This is why we're here. We're part of this community and that's why we're here for the long haul, not just the immediate short-term response, but we we know that this is going to be years uh, to come in in trying to get us all back on our feet, get this community back on our feet. This is our home. This is our family.
1: Eddie, do you have any sense of, is there any estimate yet as to the number of people whose houses have been destroyed and, are not going to be able to be go back that it's not just minor damage, but they're either going to have to be rebuilt or, or they're going to just how many people are displaced?
2: I'm still getting numbers in Monsignor, because as you know, we're just getting back into communication and and reading about everything. And, And there's a variety of numbers out there, but what I know is that there's tens of thousands displaced, um, many who will not be able to return to their home. Um, and, and so you take a, a situation uh, like we had even prior to the storm, which is, I'm, I'm sure is very similar to what you're facing in New York and in New York city. Uh, you know, there's a, a crisis of housing and affordability. Yep. Yep. And so now this storm just exacerbates that issue. It just creates a hyper crisis over a hyper crisis. And, and so we, we're trying to, you know, work with, with our local continuums of care, with HUD, uh, with, with our, our partners who also uh, develop housing with us um, to figure out what is the long-term solution. Because we're, we're, we know that that's the next phase is how do we help these people find a place to stay?
1: Okay. Eddie, um, before I let you go, if our listeners from throughout the country, if they want to help, how can they learn how they can help?
2: The best way at a distance is to visit our website, catholiccharitiesdov.org. And so the DOV is for Diocese of Venice, catholiccharitiesdov.org. We'll uh, take people to our site. They'll uh, find information there. They'll have an opportunity. They can uh, provide support in many different ways um, and and stay up to date on what's happening. What are the distribution centers that we have open? um, And, you know, uh, I, I did want to say, Monsignor, that uh, this is a, an incredible family. Um, w- without the, the Diocese of Venice, without Bishop Duane's guidance and leadership, uh, you know, this would have been a very difficult thing. We would not ha- have, uh, you know, 60% of the sites that we have at this point to be able to do what we do. So this is an incredible collaboration of the Catholic family coming together uh, and opening its doors uh, in, as a united front to help. Uh, the community come back. Uh, there's an incredible amount of effort by the priests themselves, the pastors who are going out and opening up their doors and running some of these distribution sites on their own. Uh, so it, it really is a collaborative spirit that is bringing hope uh, to this to this community.
1: So, Eddie, um, thank you so much for what you are doing. And I hope that, you know, whenever you want to come back and get the word out further about what's going on, you know, please just let us know you have an open invitation and maybe we'll reach out to you in another month or so so that you can update us on hopefully some of the um, recovery that at least has begun. And so thanks so much for what you're doing.
2: Thank you, Mancino. We would deeply appreciate another chance to uh, update you all. And uh, I want to say to all the listeners out there and, and donors and supporters, thank you so much uh, for your prayers, your well wishes and your support. And Monsignor, God bless. uh, And, and, you know, thank you for making time to to hear me out and listen to our message.
1: Thank you. Eduardo Gloria, the Chief Executive Officer of Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Venice, talking about what his Catholic Charities does and what Catholic Charities throughout the country do. On the ground, when a disaster comes, as much as we lament those disasters, we know when they come. Our local Catholic charities agencies, whether they be in Venice, whether they be in California, whether they be in New York, are on the ground, ready to respond immediately and promptly to the needs that people have. So, um, Tom, I think we'll take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And if all of us did that, our world will be, would be more just and it would be more compassionate. We'll be back. On just uh, in just a moment on the Catholic channel, Sirius XM 129.
0: now let's get back to just love and your host monsignor kevin sullivan
1: Just love, just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and more uh, compassionate. You know, I oftentimes say that we talk about important, big, broad topics here at Just Love. And sometimes they can be a little bit overwhelming. And, you know, the topic we're going to deal with next, Indigenous Peoples Day, which... You know, most people traditionally have referred to as Columbus Day. It still is Columbus Day, but there's a new dimension here. But that's a big issue that kind of deals with a lot of different topics. Uh, But, you know, all of us can do the stuff in our own lives to love God, love neighbor, love self. And if we all did that, you know, our world would be a much, much better place more compassionate, more just. And some of these big issues would begin to take care of themselves if enough of us individually dealt with those issues. So anyway, so um, Tom, uh, we are going to now move to our next guest. Our next guest is Professor Robert uh, Senkowitz, who is uh, Professor Emeritus. At Santa Clara University. Uh, we are delighted to have him on our on our show uh, this this week. Um, Professor Sankowitz, thank you for joining us on Just Love.
3: Well, thank you very much, Martin. It's very nice to be here.
1: Great. So listen, I'm not an academic. So what's emeritus mean? That that means you're that you that you got a lot of merit.
3: Is that what it means? No, (laughs) "emeritus" means that you're uh, that you're it's a name for a retired professor. So I retired from teaching at Santa Clara a couple of years ago. Ah. The joke is the joke is that uh, that um, e means you're out of it, and meritus means you deserve to be. But
1: Ah. (laughs) that's pretty good. You've been you've been at uh, Santa Clara for a while.
3: Yeah, I started there in '76, actually. So I, when I retired, I was I was there for over 40 years. Wow!
1: Oh, wow! So we've had we've had a number of professors from Santa Clara on our Just Love Show over the years, and one we've had a couple of times who also has taught there for a long time and is another East Coast transplant, taught in the theology department, uh, Fred Perella.
3: Oh yes, yes. Fred is Fred is a fellow New Yorker.
1: <laughs> yep, he, he is, and I I think he may be just about retired.
3: Or he just he just did. Yes, he just did. Just yeah. uh, just recently. Yeah, yeah, we were around the same time at Santa Clara. He kept teaching for a few years longer than I did, but uh, we we came around the same time.
1: Yep, and um, and when I've spoken to Fred over the years, whenever we were going to say, well, let's let's get together or have a call we would always joke about we're going to do it on real time because real time for him was
3: still the East Coast. So- yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly right. Yes. Uh, when, he goes, when he goes back there, he always said that he was going back to the real world. Right,
1: right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so uh, Professor Senkowitz, I am really, really intrigued about kind of what we're going to talk about today, because I think it's a pretty very, very important a topic. Um, I know that uh, you know Columbus Day, Indigenous People Day, the life legacy of Father Junipero Serra, uh, all of that. So um, why don't we just get into it? Um, how did how did you get interested in um, Father Junipero Serra?
3: Well, you know when when I when I first left uh, left the East Coast and went to Stanford, I you know having grown up in New York, I was interested in in urban stuff. So I ended up doing my dissertation on San Francisco during the, during the gold rush and, you know, uh, focusing on San Francisco led me to focusing on California and, you know, like a good historian, I went back in time from the gold rush to before the gold rush. And I started talking, you know, um, researching uh, along with uh, Rosemary Beebe, who's my collaborator and, and spouse, who teaches Spanish, who's fluent in Spanish. You know, we started researching Uh, pre-U.S. California, because, you know, my history and her Spanish were all the documents were in Spanish. And wherever, you know, when you when you look at pre-U.S. California, the missions are all over the place. And so we we did some research at the Santa Barbara Mission Archive Library, which is where most of the Franciscan mission records ended up. Uh, We connected with the Academy of American Franciscan History. Um, which is now located at the University of San Diego, but used to be in D.C. Uh, and we just got interested in, uh, in the missions. And, you know, when you got interested in the missions, uh, the figure of, of Father Sarah is once again, you know, all over the place because, you know, he, he was the only missionary who had a biography written of him um, during the, during the uh, 1700s, where soon after he died, a former student of his Father Francisco Palu, who founded Mission San Francisco, Mission Dolores in San Francisco, uh, went back to Mexico City and, and published a biography of Sarah. And so he, he was, besides being the founder, he was also the most well-known of the, of the missionaries. And, you know, for better and for worse, he becomes kind of a symbol, Sarah does. You know, he becomes kind of a symbol, not only of the mission era itself, but of all of California before the uh, before the U.S. takeover in the eighteen uh, in the eighteen forties. So, as a California historian going back in time, I've found Father Sarah um, a compelling figure and and obviously an important figure. But also, you know, um, uh, since his background was religious, and I had a religious background myself uh, as as a Catholic, I, I was very interested in in what that meant to him and how his how his faith. And how his beliefs, you know, influenced what he did when he when he came to uh, to the New World. So
1: you know, um, Professor Senkowitz, I'm, I'm probably going to ask you to do something that's very boring to you, but but maybe for our listeners and for me, who's not as knowledgeable but we've heard the term the California missions and we've heard that, but maybe we kind of don't know what they are. Could you, could you give me the remedial kind of version of (laughs) missions in
3: California? I could give you a, -hmm. I could give you a, I could give you a, a, you know, an abbreviated version. Sure. That's, you know, when when the Spanish first came, you know, with Columbus, they were, they were centered in, in the Caribbean and, you know, what they, what the, um, you know the the trilogy that the Spaniard Jews they were after God gold and glory you know not necessarily in that in that order actually right. and so they what what the what the first um, uh, people did the conquistadors they they conscripted the native peoples of the Caribbean to go out and look for gold because they thought they were kind of close to Asia and you know Asia was a land was was a, uh, an area of riches so they were they were looking for gold and they treated the Indians very very poorly uh, the Taíno people in the Caribbean especially. And, uh, and in 1511, at the um, at the cathedral, at the main church in Santo Domingo in Hispaniola, which is now the Dominican Republic, a Dominican friar named Antonio Montesinos on the first Sunday of Advent went up to the pulpit during mass um, and the pulpit was, you know, the congregation was these daughters, you know, and the, the first time they've had the gospel uh, is St. John the Baptist. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. And uh, he said, Montesino said, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. By what right do you keep these Indians in slavery? How, how can you possibly treat them so? And that begins to kind of, you know, one of the people in the congregation, there was a man who becomes the Dominican friar, Bartolome de las Casas, who heard Montesino's talk. And, and what happens is that within the church, especially first within the Dominicans, but then it spreads to the Jesuits and the Franciscans and the Augustinians, who are the major uh, orders there. It, what they decide to do is to protect the native peoples by creating spaces for them uh, in which, in which the conquista daughters and their and their brutal treatment of the Indians would not be allowed, and these spaces these spaces were you know eventually evolved into missions, and you know in in Latin America missions are all over the place you know from from Tierra del Fuego in the south up to uh, up to Sonoma in the um, in in the northern California there were hun- literally hundreds of these missions and they were designed to protect the Indians from oppression by uh, the Spanish and and later the Mexican uh, government, Um, especially, you know, know, they never found gold in Mexico or Peru, but they found a lot of silver and most of the silver was mined by enslaved uh, Indians. And so the missions were designed to protect and they they moved north from Mexico City, uh, and also South but we will focus on the North. And they, they eventually, you know, they reach all over the place. You know there's the most famous mission in the United States is is uh, is an institution you know which when I saw Walt Disney's Davy Crockett back in the 1950s, I didn't realize that the Alamo was a mission, but it was San Antonio de Valera. they're they're, they're literally all over the place. And what happens is that eventually um, you know the missions serve two functions. they serve the function of, creating a a safe space for the native peoples, but they also become, you know, over time, not all native peoples want to join missions and they become uh, instruments of, of, of coercion as well. Um, You know, you can understand by the, by the theology of the day, you know, if you're not baptized, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not uh, going to be saved. Uh, And, and so the missionaries, uh generally try to uh you know if, if people wanted to leave the missions they were not allowed to do that uh if people didn't want to join the missions they were sometimes forced into and 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 they were forced to become you know um uh practicing catholics at least on the uh, on the surface so that so the missions you know the way that they develop they have two things going on at the same time they have a kind of an evangelical part but part of the evangelical aspect of the missions is also a coercive uh, presence, you know, and I think, it, you know, you've got to, uh, you know, to be honest, most missionaries, even in California, uh, you know, didn't do an especially good job of telling the uh, the prospective um, um, uh, candidates for baptism that, you know, from the point of view of Catholic theology, baptism is a lifetime commitment, you know, you know, some people obviously got baptized because they were trying to be polite, you know, or, uh, but, but you know, once you were baptized, that was it. You had to stay there. And so what happens is that when the missions move into California and California is actually the last of the, of the of the mission uh, uh, enterprises in, uh, in in New Spain, then they move into California in 1769. They bring all of that stuff with them. And Sarah, you know, was an interesting kind of guy because Sarah was he was from the island of Mallorca in the uh, in the Mediterranean, you know, one of the Balearic Islands, and he had joined the Franciscans at a very very early age and became a very very well known. A teacher and preacher on the island of Mallorca. He taught in the in the Lillian in the Franciscan University. He was a preacher who was in demand all over the island. You know, he was he was a very, very well-known guy. And at some point, you know, in the 17, he's about 34, 35 years old. At some point, he decides that, you know. I think he probably, you know, it would, it would be probably anachronistic to say he was having an identity crisis or anything like that. But he was asking himself, you know, is this is this what I wanted from being a Franciscan, from becoming a priest, you know, to be a well-known academic? And, you know, by this time, the Franciscans were all over the new world. And, and Sarah volunteers. And at a very, you know, with the life expectancy, then his life is half over. You know, he volunteers for the missions. And he, he gets to, um, he gets to um, Veracruz in Mexico in, in, in 1749. He goes overland from Veracruz to Mexico City. You know, on New Year's Day, actually New Year's Eve, 1749, he's praying at the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe right outside of Mexico City. And that, that, that's kind of important because he realizes, you know, he's, he, and, and he, he always kind of knows this, that popular Catholicism in Mexico, you know, looking praying before this Mestiza Virgin, you know, is, is different than the Catholicism that he knew in Spain. So, so he kind of knows that, that the kind of religion that uh, is, is going on in, in New Spain, especially among the, among the indigenous people, it's gonna be a different kind of religion that was going on in Spain. And so he spends, you know, one of the things about Father Serra that most people don't understand is that in the new world, he spent more time in what is now Mexico than he did in what is now California. He spent um, eight years in a mountainous region outside of the city of Querétaro um, the, among the Pame Indians. And uh, he spent another eight years doing um, uh, what were called domestic missions. I don't know if, I think they still have them. You know, when I was growing up in St. Columba, every couple of years, um, you know, St. Columba on West 25th <laughs> Street, every couple of years, a group of redemptorists, I think they would, would come and give missions right. at the at our parish, you know, and, that, and the idea was to kind of revivify the the enthusiasm of, of us, you know, so there were long lines outside right. the confessionals, there were benedictions, processions, and that sort of thing. Well, it's spent eight years doing that, Sarah did. And uh, so he really, by the time he gets to California, he's a he's an experienced, Missionary among indigenous people, but he's also an experienced preacher uh, among uh, among the Mexican uh, people. So, so he brings to California a very, very uh, distinctive set of qualities and characteristics, which uh, which many missionaries, you know, who were generally ten years younger than him, uh, which many missionaries did not really have. So that's kind of an abbreviated version. Muncie, that, is, <laughs> that is
1: fascinating. It's great, but I want to jump ahead now, Professor Senkawiz, who is Professor Emeritus of History at Santa Clara University. Let, let's go to, and I ask you this as a historian, with you know some of the things that kind of make the general media. I mean, where you know Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day. So let me ask, kind of the broad. $35,000, 35,000 foot historical <laughs> question. Uh, and I'll, I'll phrase it in a maybe a little bit of a provocative way. Um, is it right to judge people of a prior era by the values of the current era? How do we, uh, I'll phrase it in that broad way and you take it in whatever direction you're comfortable with.
3: Yeah, the, the, the question is, you know, I mean, history is always the study of the past. So one of the things that you really want to try to do is understand the value systems of of the past. And 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 many value systems of the past are not, you know, are 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 alien to us, you know. Right. Um you know, whether, whether you're studying ancient Athenians or ancient Romans or, uh, or indigenous peoples in the, uh, in the Americas, they're, 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 they're different from us. But that study of the past is always done in a particular present. And so history always kind of has a, an interplay between present and past. And so you, while, you, while you're trying to sympathize with the people in the past, you have to realize that people in the past um, took for granted Uh, A number of things that we will not, we we think are wrong today. So, for example, when Sarah comes to America in in, in the the 1750s, uh, you know, I would say 99.9% of the people in Europe whether they were religious or, or, or politicians or military, thought that the, Amer- the natives of the Americas were inferior to Europeans. I mean, that, that was just one of the things that was, that was taken for granted, you know? And, and so you're going to expect part of the missionary enterprise to reflect that feeling of, of, of that they are superior. On the other hand, um, you have to realize that there were other people back in the past uh, who had even more negative views of the indigenous people than the um, than the missionaries did? You know, the, you know. Sometimes you hear nowadays um, that the missionaries thought that the Indians were subhuman. You know, that, you know. And well, I mean, if that were the case, they wouldn't have tried to convert them. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's ridiculous. But there were some Europeans who thought that, but the missionaries were not in that category. So there are gradations, you know, of the way that people acted in the past. You know, and and whatever you want to say, and there there was, as I said earlier, coercion in the California missions. But you know, in in Spanish society, and it's important to remember. And then Pope Francis made this point. You know, at, when he canonized um, Father Sarah, you know, we tend to think of the United States as something that started in east, in the East Coast, the Plymouth Rock, Jamestown, and moved west. California. And 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 what's now the American Southwest was not part of that. You know, they were part, you know, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada were not part, Texas were not part of North America like we understand North America. Pardon they were part,
1: spoken as a true Argentinian. <laughs> That's
3: right. They were part of Latin America. They were right. absolutely part of Latin America. Yeah. And in Latin America, the indigenous people had a place in society. Yeah. It was an inferior place to be true, but it was a place. Now, you know, the the, the, the English who are coming in, you know, from, from uh, you know, uh, with their Puritan sensibilities and everything, the indigenous people did not have a place, you know, the British policy, right. which the US then takes over is pretty simple. You push them farther and farther to the West and or kill them. You know, mm-hmm. and 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 the the Spanish policy and the Mexican policy was was very different. And so, Sarah shares in those kinds of of ambiguities. Right. He had a deep love and a deep affection for the indigenous people. You know, there's one yeah. part that that Rosemary and have in our biography of him where he's he's questioning one of the um, people he's he's um, he's baptized. He's questioning, trying to understand what the indigenous, in this case, the uh, the Ohlone beliefs are. You know, and that's a that's a, that's a missionary strategy, which, which says that, you know, there are things in your culture, which we can, you know, say are similar to what's going on in our culture. Some of your beliefs and our beliefs are similar. And so as a good experienced missionary and as a humble missionary, what Sarah was trying to do was trying to, you know, after a guy who had prayed in front of our lady of Guadalupe, what he's trying to do is get the commonalities between indigenous spirituality and traditional Christian spirituality as a way of trying to make the conversion process uh, a much more easy process for the, uh, for the indigenous peoples. So he he's, he's he's trying to do what, you know, classical Christian missionaries, you know, have tried to do for centuries. But, you Mrs. know, a- Go
1: ahead. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I learned a whole lot. I know our listeners did. I am just uh, so grateful for your taking the time to kind of share with us the results of your uh, scholarship and, and, and sharing it in a way which is so uplifting, enjoyable, but insightful to understand the complexity of, of the past. So, Professor Senkowitz, thank you so much for, for joining us on Just Love today.
3: Thank you so much, Monsignor. And thank you for your wonderful work with Catholic Charities.
1: Great. Thank you.
3: Professor Robert
1: Sankowitz, Professor of History Emeritus at Santa Clara University. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love.
0: Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away,
1: Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. Our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. As we are into this Columbus Day weekend and People weekend, we had a conversation about the history of the missions in California, and Father St. Sarah, who, again, a little bit of controversy given some of the ambiguous parts of the history of the founding of those missions and the evangelization that was there. Um, But good for us to reflect on, important for us to reflect on As we try to move forward in our world in, you know, improving the way that we deal with diversity, with people who are different. And we can learn from some of the mistakes of the past and we can learn from some of the wonderful, bright parts of our past also. So thank you for being with us on Just Love. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
0: You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.